You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast about film often contains foul language, discussions of an adult nature, and spoilers for the films discussed are to be expected. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome back. <laughs> I, just saw your, I just saw your name. I just saw your name. That's fine. Oh, okay. Where did you see my name? Oh, oh, my name and the thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and the thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, sorry. <laughs> Let's start over. Well, you, you kind of, you're kind of the same. <laughs> yeah, we both had the same thought, didn't we? <laughs> I wonder what we're going to talk about this week. Mm. Yeah. We should just leave this in. We should just leave this in. Yeah, for for those uh, for those listening at home, Streamyard gives you the uh, ability to put your own little uh, names in uh, in little uh, what are cryons? What were yeah, the Chirons? Whatever. whatever. Yeah, Chirons. Yeah. yeah. I am friendly white imperialist, and Daniel is manifest destiny for the win. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we've been kind of doing this to each other for the since we started recording this on the Streamyards, but we don't typically like highlight this for the audience. It's just a joke between uh, Lee and I, and the fact that we both uh, chose this particular topic for this episode <laughs> tells me a lot about what we're going to talk about today. So, welcome, settler colonialism and the Western. Yeah. Uh, so what episode is this, Lee? This is uh, They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 194. And I'm your host, <laughs> Lee, pushing westward, Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel, laying rails along that rainbow. Harper, how are you doing, sir? I am laying rails along a rainbow. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the things we end up, the things we end up doing for this mm-hmm. podcast, it's great. Yeah, so, yeah. It was really hard for me to find a quote that could be vaguely taken as sexual that I can apply to you. So, well, you know, I appreciate I appreciate the effort. Uh, yeah, so we're doing the covered wagon from 1923, and we're going to be also looking at the Iron Horse from 1924. So we're still in the silent movies, still fully embedded in the uh, in these ones, and uh, for I'm another say, month or two, really, yeah. we'll be in silence. Yeah, yeah, and. Now I think we've uh, well, I'll, I'll, well, we'll talk about our thoughts on the films, but I think we've definitely continued to see like a progression of just like how well these are made, though. Like where we've really kind of stepped up with these two films, I think, and as far as technical aspects go. Sure, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of tempted to just talk about them together. I don't know how you feel about that. It is worth separating them, but it's also mm-hmm. kind of the, it's interesting to kind of think about them together. You know, my thought. <laughs> you know, is uh, obviously we are seeing this like almost perfection of this kind of uh, genre at this point of uh, like like silent film is only going to last for another, you know, the first talkies are going to come out like three years after the Iron Horse, yeah. and uh, by the early thirties they're basically done, you know, and so we are seeing this like perfection of the genre, and both of these feel like really modern in some ways and really dated in other ways, and the ways that they feel dated feel more like cultural than they feel like filmmaking style 
And, you know, mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about something like um, Birth of a Nation with these, which I've seen, in which, despite the fact that that's from 1915, and despite the fact that that's uh, this hugely important like landmark film, which is also deeply racist in ways that are like really overt yeah. <laughs> and all like, like, you know, this is like the film that rebirthed the clan, you know, <laughs> in the 1910s. Uh, so in case you're, in case you didn't get that uh, lesson, um, watch that film. It feels very, uh, yeah, this is kind of an old fashioned silent film. Whereas like these films both feel like, yeah, you could basically throw, you know, you could kind of cut this down a bit. You could throw some subtitles on this, you could throw in some sound effects, and you could kind of play this to modern audiences. They're they're shot and edited the way modern films are, and that's something that's a little bit surprising, um, mm-hmm. you know, for someone just kind of kind of looking at this for the first time. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So we don't really have any comments. Uh, I'll just mention: Did you see uh, Darren Wilson's uh, meme he put this week in the uh, Facebook group? I I don't think so. The joke we made about having the devil from Hacks and just showing up in blazing saddles and farting. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I, did see, I did see that one. Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, so uh, there we go. Uh, Darren, Darren Wilson uh, scores again with another uh, great little meme. Uh, yep. So thank you, Darren. Please uh, and, check out our Facebook group. Yeah, and, and of course, check out uh, Darren's podcast, uh, Psychosomaticast, as well. Darren, I'd love to come on your show again sometime this year. I keep I keep meaning to just message him, but if he's listening to the show, like uh, just uh, just message me. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Just, just Make him do him. the work. Make him do yeah. the work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the weird thing, though. Like Darren just kind of he he sits on his podcast and just kind of like asks a couple questions. He's more like an interviewer almost on his podcast. He just kind of like yeah. throws some questions and. And, and rarely kind of like interjects and same time, still one of the best podcasts out there, especially for, yeah, if you like listening good. about uh, political films uh, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Also, uh, I'll just mention this and uh, uh, Robert Ward, who's been posting a bunch of different links surrounding silent films. He posted something, a, a, a clip. It, it's an upscale. And this I saw, is, um, I saw this. It's amazing. I saw this. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone, someone used neural networks. I don't know what that is to upscale in 1985 film to 4k at 60 and frames per 1885 second. film. 18, yeah. 1895. This is a classic film of a locomotive, like coming into a station and then like people coming in. And so they used basically a, a piece of software that would kind of interpolate between the pixels as a way of uh, upscaling this to like super high definition 4k and this is a classic piece of footage if you're a film buff and you've kind of like looked into the history of film you've probably seen bits of this before seeing it in this like 4k high definition version literally kind of like it, it's like oh no this is real life this was this was a real thing that happened that was filmed and uh if uh, some of these silence that we've been covering do get covered in the same way if in like 10 years this becomes mm-hmm. like the standard like you know up you know that's going to be kind of an amazing experience. So it's, um, yeah. uh, it's shocking. Like actually, so I was reading the article and like the first clip it shows at first, I thought that was the clip. And then even then I was impressed because it was like a, you know, like a fully restored kind of mm-hmm. like yeah. digital restoration of that clip. And I was like, Oh, that looks really great. 
Then I scroll and down. And then you see the oh. 4K version. Yeah. And it's like, well, now I just feel like I'm standing here watching people get off a train. You know? Exactly. No, it looks like someone had a cam, a digital camcorder in the 1800s and, and filmed the train coming into the station. That's, that's how good it looks. And they just they put like a black and white filter on it. That's what they did. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah so uh, thanks for that, Robert. That, that was really cool to see that. Yeah, I saw that. That was shared around Twitter a couple of uh, times in my um, in my purview. So yeah, right on. Um, yeah, so uh, we can move on to what we've watched uh, recently. I don't really have anything to mention, so I know you got a couple things. So I'll just throw over to you, Daniel. Sure, I've been uh, watching some documentaries on Netflix or some. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, I watched the the documentary "Don't F with Cats." Which oh, is I've been wanting to watch cats. that. Yeah, it's quite good and something that. Uh, I have a little bit of a personal connection to. I mean, this is basically like the story of. Uh, so, a this is about animal abuse mm-hmm. first and foremost, and then it becomes about this guy who is abusing animals um, ends up being a killer and like a budding serial killer, but he's yeah. caught before he can do anything. And it is based on like basically uh, this guy like posts this video to Facebook, which is him like sealing some small cats into a plastic bag and then like turning on a vacuum to suffocate them to death. That's, that's where this starts in case you're curious about whether you would be interested in pursuing this or not. They do some very clever editing and some very kind of, um, you know, kind of keeping the worst of it kind of off screen, but this is the nature of what we're looking at. And if you're sensitive to that, just be aware of it before you go in. Then a group of like Facebook, <laughs> Facebook researchers start like researching this guy and like figuring out based on like the shape of the wall sockets and the background and stuff like where this guy probably lives, and there's this sort of research community, and then in episode two it ends up being like oh and maybe he's killed a guy and then um, you know like the police get involved and then he moves along to France and then episode three is kind of about the manhunt for this guy so mm-hmm. it's really quite good. You know, I have a personal preference for the sort of the, the first bit of this where, um, you know, it is kind of this like um, kind of the research community. And a lot of the problem kind of comes about when the, uh, you know, the, the cops just don't believe these people. Like they're, they, it's a little like, look, we have all this evidence that we've put together. We've spent collectively thousands of hours trying to like find this guy. And they literally, you know. They they saw a photo of this particular guy on a stairwell, and they figured out he's probably in Montreal. And so they went, did Google Maps, Google Street View, through the streets of Montreal until they found oh. that particular... And this is a thing that people do to find terrible people. Like, yeah. this is hours and hours and hours and hours worth of work. And the cops are like, yeah, yeah, go away, losers. And that's kind of the, you know, the nature of it. It's a really good documentary. There, I do have some issues with some of the stuff that's in it. I interview this guy's mom, and his mom has particular opinions about kind of what's going on. Like, she thinks there's her son was being controlled by this other guy who's the real villain of the piece. Oh. And I did a little bit of looking into this, just kind of Googling around, and it's uh, no, that identity is a fake identity that this guy created because he created a ton of like fake identities to throw people off. And his mom is sort of bought into this kind of particular narrative about it. But the documentary doesn't really challenge that and um, just kind of presents it as kind of an alternative view of the case. And hmm. maybe that was sort of her, maybe the, that was them trying to like get 
her on to, to come on camera and talk about it because there is some like insightful stuff that we get from her, but it does kind of feel like uh, slightly uh, problematic, <laughs> you know, to, to not kind of challenge that. But it's a three part documentary. They're like an hour long and it's, uh, it's worth it. it. It's, it's, it's good stuff. The other thing I watched and I haven't finished this yet, but I watched the first two episodes of another one of these true crime Netflix documentaries called the pharmacist. And so I haven't finished this. I won't talk in a lot of detail about it, but also has the same thing of like, uh, this guy who kind of got into, um, understanding this criminal syndicate who, uh, was not listened to by the cops. And, um, I'll, I'll leave it to you. The people who know, um, something about like what my day to day life is like as to how, um, frustrating I find, uh, some of this, but, uh, um, this one is very good. I, I kind of like uh, I kind of like these guys. I kind of like the, the this narrative, and um, yeah, I'm gonna try to finish it up this week, and, and maybe talk about it a little bit more next time. But um, I know the uh, from from the first two from the first two, uh, also very very good. So yeah, I know the story of that one. Like I, I remember reading about that. He's he's a pharmacist, right? And his, his, his he's kid... he's a pharmacist. So his son gets killed yeah. as part of like a drug deal, and like he the, like his son kind of falls into. Oxycontin, and this is in like the late nineties, in like nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the guy, like he first he tracks down his son's killer, who ends up being some rando, like kind of on a on a drug buy, and like that guy goes to prison, and he actually ends up being in the documentary. Like he served his time, he kind of comes out. He he seems like he's learned, you know, he's done the thing, and he seems like a. You know, I'd buy him a beer, honestly. <laughs> you know, like this guy who clearly murdered a guy, but has has put his life back together and understands. Like, yeah, I was in this really fucked up place. And the father, who who is a pharmacist in this t- small town, ends up kind of asking questions like, "So, why are there all these like young twenty somethings who are coming in and buying all this oxycontin all the time?" And then he ends up tracking it to uh, this particular like doctor who's essentially like running a pill mill and they're like selling, you know, millions of pills every year sort of thing. And, um, ends up kind of exploring that. And then the FBI, like they interview people from the FBI and from the, the DEA and from, you know, who are basically saying like, well, at the time we couldn't tell him that we had a investigation going on because we're not allowed to share that information. And he got really annoying with us and that sort of thing. But also it's, pretty clear that i don't know like i I haven't finished it yet so i really don't know quite where the narrative's going um but it does feel like there's some um there's some nuance uh nuance to it and so i'm looking forward to finishing it up but uh based on the first two episodes it's it's really good it's really good so i've been been, like straight up true criming it this week yeah Yeah, those are both that i've been wanting to watch so yeah Yeah. awesome yeah, so uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play a little bit of music, some podcast promos, and we're going to come back and talk about The Covered Wagon. You ungodly warlock. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. 
It takes a powerful goddess like Connie jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything Dude, that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hello there. My name is Matt, and I'm a humble court bailiff in a courtroom designed to bring musical justice to all. Each week, we have a podcast with a judge and a jury, and we determine whether a song is guilty, not guilty, or not guilty by reasons of insanity. You know, something like, uh... Or maybe it's a cover of Tom Petty. You can find us wherever you find podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, all that stuff. Just look for songs on trial, please. Okay, I love you. Make good choices. You ungodly warlock. Wagon train, on train. 400 mules, 600 men. They didn't know the devil was in this mile-long train, wagon train. A man in black, no one knew his name. He was the devil for sure, leading that train. He said, all you miners, you scanners too. Fifteen days I'll say for you You see that plane Those mountains there I'll take you across <laughs> If you dare Wagon train My long train Six hundred men, they didn't know the devil was in this mile-long train, wagon train. Now the only way out was the way they came in. And the shift in sand covered tracks where they'd been. So one by one. They all died of thirst And the devil just laughed At his mile-long hearse That's where the name Death Valley began For there's no way out And only one way in Wagon train Mile
600 men They didn't know the devil was in this mile-long train Wagon train Mile-long train All right, the cover wagon from 1923. This is directed by James Cruz, who was a silent film actor who became a director. Uh, unfortunately, his life uh, ended very early. I think 1942 or something, or somewhere around there, he committed suicide, fell into alcoholism, and committed suicide. So that's sad. Uh, written by Emerson Hugh and Jack Cunningham. This is starring Jay Warren Carrington as Will Banyan and. He's probably also known for Captain Blood. He starred in over 300 films up until 1924. <laughs> yep. So kind of prolific. <laughs> he made all the, and like, it is like when you look at these silent film actors, like they make films the way like porn film actors do today, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, I was on a film for five days and then you just move on to the next one. You just kind of, you're just always doing this because before the invention of sound and when you know you didn't need a lot of time, Right. To like do setups and shit, so you could literally just shoot everything in like three weeks and move on, you know. Yeah, his career was apparently hurt for his anti-war stance, but he had a weird anti-war stance for World War One. Apparently, he made statements about how the everyday normal people should be the ones who are drafted, and anyone who's in the arts, quote unquote, should be left alone from serving in, in the war. That, that uh, feels slightly self-serving. I'm not gonna, yeah. you know, like you know, yeah, I don't know. I'm in the arts. I'm making movies. You know. I, I mean, should... I'm, I'm I'm against the draft anyways across the board, but it's like to be selective about it. No, it's... <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, I'm making movies here. Come on. You shouldn't you shouldn't yeah. put me in there. It's like this guy could write the next fucking amazing opera. Why? Why put him in a trench in World War One? Yeah, why I, put I mean, anyone I... in a trench? I fully support the draft for anyone who is not a podcaster. That's the... Because we're doing the real important work. We're doing the really important work. Talking (laughs) into microphones about movies. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Lois Wilson as Molly Wingate. Uh, She was in The Great Gatsby. uh, The silent version of The Great Gatsby. She she went on to be like a producer, director, writer. Like, you know, she did a ton of stuff Mm -hmm. up up until the mid-30s, so... 150 credits. Uh, Most of hers are lost, though. Even stuff into the 30s, a lot of it is lost, and only pieces remain with the Library of Congress. I was looking at her fucking filmography. Lost. Uh, Excerpt. (laughs) Owned by Library of Congress. Uh, Blah, 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 blah. Right down her list. It's like, wow. A lot of her stuff's gone. Alan Hale as Sam Woodhull. Actor, director. uh, Worked a lot with Errol Flynn, apparently. Um, Mm -hmm. He he basically played the... uh, the second, the second guy supporting character in a lot of films. He is also an inventor. He invented the sliding theater chair, which is apparently a chair you could like push back and slide back, so you could let a person walk by you in in the in the row, like so they didn't have you know you didn't have to stand up and let them go past you and shit like that. So interesting. Although I don't, he think solves I... he solves the Tyler Durden problem. The uh, the. <laughs> cock or ass problem (laughs) but like that does require there to be like extra space in the uh in the row 
for these seats, which uh, ultimately is the fundamental problem. And so he's an inventor who makes a clever thing to solve a problem that will never be solved because capitalism is a thing. That's not the only thing he invented, though. Apparently, he is the inventor of the hand fire extinguisher. And the and here and here's the big one, the greaseless potato chip. I have so many questions, and I'm just going to move on from that because these are questions that are not going to be answered on this podcast. Not only is claim like I feel up. like did he invent air frying? Is that the thing that he did maybe, to create maybe? the greaseless potato chip? Maybe, maybe, maybe you know the air fryers are big this year. A lot of people have air fryers all of a sudden this year that I've sort of. I don't know why it's blown up in in my circles. Apparently, maybe maybe it just came to Canada. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Canada only now, has the air fryer. <laughs> only now, ninety five years later, <laughs> discovered the air fryer. Right? Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. But uh, here's another fun little fact: he is the father of Alan Hale Jr., who is Skipper from Gilligan's Isle. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Uh, Ernest Torrance is William Jackson. I, I just wrote down this notable that uh, he was in the 1932 adaptation of Sherlock Holmes as I Moriarty. Literally added that to our list uh, <laughs> when I was watching this, and I was doing the like uh, Google, and I went like, "Oh, he played Moriarty in a 1932 Sherlock Holmes." Well, I guess we're just gonna have to do that now because this well, guy is amazing. He's the best film. actor in this thing. Yeah, he's no, a great. He's also six foot four. We're going to get yeah. to this. Yeah, no. So Tully Marshall is Jim Bridger. And this, of course, is a real life person. We will talk about Jim Bridger. I'm yeah, sure. uh, Jim real Marshall. scout. Um, if you guys know the movie The Revenant, he's the young guy who's one of the people leaves Hugh Glass to die from the bear attack. And, you know, of course, there's there's all kinds of tall tales and shit like that. But he was a real life sort of frontiersman scout. Yeah, and- there's historical like people basically doubt that that's like real that it was uh-huh. like they uh, the the bear attack was real but like whether Jim Bridger was in, in any way involved in that like that's like 50 years later like people were claiming yeah. he was involved so like that's very unlikely as far as I'm concerned but you know but uh, there's a shit ton of places that were named after this guy that's how famous he was yeah <laughs> right Bill, uh, Brad Pitt's character in Inglorious Bastards claims mm. to be a descendant of Jim Bridger if you. Uh, although yeah pop culture uh, jim bridger apparently had a bunch of indian wives although uh <laughs> not together as as portrayed in the film yeah. uh, we will talk about this in a moment i promise um although uh, but none, know, none of them are apache so yeah, yeah. not apaches yeah, yeah. like uh <laughs> but hey, whatever. Charles Ogle is uh, Jesse Wingate, uh, Ethel Wales as Mrs. Wingate, Guy Oliver as Kit Carson, also another famous frontiersman, and Johnny Fox as Jed Wingate. And synopsis here from Thomas McWilliams on IMDb says, two wagon caravans converge at what is now Kansas City and combine for the westward push to Oregon. In their quest, the pilgrims will experience desert heat, mountain snow, hunger, and Indian tack. To complicate matters further, a love triangle develops as pretty Molly must choose between Sam, a brute, and Will, the dashing captain of the other caravan. Can Will overcome his skeleton in his closet and win Molly's heart? And yeah, that's kind of the story. narrative, yeah. I mean, it skips about a, like, 40-minute interlude in the middle of the film, (laughs) which is the best thing in the film, but we'll get there, yeah. Yeah. So your thoughts, Daniel? 
I almost despite myself really enjoyed watching this. Um, this is a deeply fucked up movie. It's from 1923. There's kind of no way it's not going to be deeply fucked up, but this is deeply fucked up. Um, even by that standard, uh, mm-hmm. let's just, let's just do this now. Both of these films are Westerns. Like apparently the Western was kind of dead at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was kind of like seen as like this kind of B movie thing. Not really a thing that you would do if you wanted to make money. Uh, just kind of, yeah, okay, kind of bullshit. We're going we're gonna to do the thing. The Covered Wagon uh, brought all of these back in a real way by doing by, by putting the kind of epic budget treatment in this. And the Iron Horse, which we're going to do in, in, a, in a little bit, capitalized on that trend and, and kind of solidified it. So like these two films that we're watching basically sort of invented the Western genre as we're going to see it for the next 50 years. Yeah. You know, we're also like literally the, and I didn't realize this when I put them on the list or when uh, we decided to do them together. These are the top grossing films of 1923 and 1924 respectively. So, um, there you go, in case you're curious. These are also both kind of deeply imperialist, you know, manifest yeah. destiny kinds of films. They're like this this is very classic cowboys and Indians where the Native Americans are not really treated as people. And there's a particular moment in the covered wagon where you know, like the plow ends up being a like kind of central metaphor of the film, and like we're gonna we're gonna kind of go out and we're going to till the fields, and we're going to um, farm, and we're going to like kind of bring civilization to these to these like kind of wastelands. Right, it's, it's, it's and, both a symbol of uh, hope and a symbol of imperialist evil, if because the Indians <laughs> have one as well. It's like this is what they're going to use. Well, and the and the, and the Native Americans like they show up, like they they end up they have one. And they're like, this is the thing that the evil, the pale faces are going to come and use this thing. And they literally surround it like they're like the apes in 2001, like surrounding the monolith. And I mean, it is like this, you know, oh, what is this thing? And like, look, I, I looked it up. The steel plow was kind of a new invention around this time. It had been, but like, these are. These Native American characters are literally wearing like Western clothes. Yeah. They're you know like this is not so like the the technology was new but not like that new. Um, so it is a little bit like you know a bunch of you know uh, Africans in Namibia like standing around like an iPhone and going like this is the thing they're going to use to torture or something like it's like this like deeply like fucked up. Like yeah, and, and the Native Americans at this time, like they weren't that far into the Stone Age that a lot of people want to like portray them as. Oh no, either. no, I mean it's well, it is it is weird because like they are portrayed wearing like Western clothes, which is not. There's nothing wrong with not not wearing Western clothes at that, but so they're portrayed as being both with it enough to be wearing like button up shirts but like primitive enough to not understand what a steel plow is. And so, um, so they're, they're, they're hipsters they, they dress the part, but you know, they're not <laughs> right. Um, and the, and the film, I mean, it literally is like a, like a, like a two minute scene. I mean, this is not like an extended sequence of the film, but it's so encapsulates so many of the issues that this film just has around this topic of it just sort of justifies the violence that these, that these people are going to kind of bring to our heroes. Right. And we're never going to get to see them as people ever again. Yeah. It's just going to be, they resent the movement of the white people into their land, which, you know, if you're going to at least just portray it, right. Like we can, we can at least give them that for, for like saying that. 
Um, I'll say this: it's definitely much more sensitive than a lot of films that come after it. Oh yeah, no, 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 definitely, definitely. Well, that's not the question, right? Like, like I agree with that. It is like the fact that they had enough self-awareness to go let's give them a moment to actually speak yeah. amongst themselves and to do this but then to do it in both the like hyper racist way mm-hmm. and to like not actually think maybe we should reconvision the entire film if this is you know it feels like a like a like a sop to this sort of like you know liberal sensibility i mean it literally is like we've got a lesbian kiss in the background of three seconds of this movie you know sort of <laughs> sort of sort of kind of representation Anyway, moving on from that, I feel like I've, I've spoken to. Yeah. Um, this is an entertaining film. Once you kind of get beyond that, I mean, it is shot and edited in this kind of very modern way. I really liked, well, <laughs> both of these kind of have this problem of you've got this like super white bread protagonist uh, mm-hmm. who is completely wet cardboard boring for yeah. most of the film and all the people around him are much much more interesting yep. <laughs> despite the fact that they're like given um yeah this is one I, I don't know i don't know how you feel about this i looked into like the invention of subtitles uh when i was watching this because i was kind of thinking you know at this point they're doing kind of these intertitle uh things mm-hmm. where like you know where people talk and then you do an intertitle and then you kind of move on subtitles at this point like it's an expensive process because you've got to do like a process shot of like actually optically kind of like putting them onto the frame and that sort of thing they had been used as early as 1909 um from what i from my little bit of research that i did and so they did exist but it was not like kind of a standard thing i think this film would really benefit from like sort of a recut with subtitles because it's a talky film there's a lot of there's a lot of like conversation happening and i feel like if you took the same dialogue but just kind of stuck it on the frame so that you're not kind of constantly cutting from a person talking into a joke into person talking or responding or whatever i feel like that's kind of the thing that that gets in the way of of what this film is is trying to do uh, and you and you're right no you're right because the the pacing of this film does kind of suffer from that a little bit where it's continuously like there's so much dialogue going on that it continuously jumps to those but at the same time there's a lot of stuff that actually isn't put in those those mm-hmm. title cards uh where it's just they're talking and you're kind of trying to have to interpret what they're saying and right. then every once in a while, it gets that beat where it hits like, "Oh, here's what they're saying," and that pulls the forward the the story forward or whatever. Um, so it's it also would... based on a novel, so I do wonder, yeah. like how, like, like what that adaptation process was at that point of like, look, we can't put a we can't we can't just have people talk to each other, so we've got to. <laughs> You know, like shoot them talking and then like put in like the very obvious, you know, things. They're they're supposed to be saying something, right? I mean, because we see a lot of scenes of people saying shit and then it'll get to a certain point where it'll give a a fucking title card to show what they're saying. So there's definitely, it almost feels like there was probably like a longer script that they learned that they're reading from and they're saying that shit. And then they're just selectively picking parts of it to actually put on the film uh, to, to, you know, progress the story. So yeah, if you, if you could find like the original shooting script of this, right. And then subtitles on, that would probably be very helpful. With this you could, because... you could absolutely play this to modern audiences. Yes. Um, you know, if you, if you, 
if you subtitled it like appropriately, you could you could sell this as a as almost a modern film. I mean, it it does. And again, just kind of thinking about Birth of a Nation and how kind of like old that feels, even compared to something like this, to where this mm-hmm. really isn't. I hate to kind of keep coming back to this because we talked about it a little bit last week, you know. But like this is shot and edited in a much more modernistic way yeah. than even stuff that was made like. 40 years later would have been this this is really sophisticated editing i mean there's one there's one moment there's one like kind of like sequence where uh our 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 female i think our female heroine lois wilson is molly wingate i really liked lois uh lois wilson she's given kind of nothing to do but i hope we we come back to her yeah Um, you know in in terms of our podcast girlfriends i think she's she's got potential let's just put it that way yeah um (laughs) but there's a moment where she's kind of like looking wistfully into the distance and you do get like pov shots and it's like an irish shot from her Mm -hmm. perspective and that's such a like effective thing in this film like if we did it today you would see it as this kind of obvious like you know artifice but at that time like cutting from the wide to like her iris shot on the guy that she's kind of looking at feels very authentic it feels very real and it feels very visceral in the in in the way that the film was shot and i i I admire this film in in a whole lot of ways well there on on top of like the the sort of historical thing here and like both of these films are they kind of center on okay here here's the history of Mm -hmm. the expansion to the west you know kind of thing but uh yeah this is about like kind of conestoga wagons like crossing um the 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 great plains and uh traveling to oregon like that's kind of the oregon trail yeah you're gonna die of dysentery (laughs) it's it's oregon trail 60 years early right (laughs) (laughs) but uh but but the molly character so there, there, of course, there's moments like, oh, you know, the silly woman wants to ride a horse, and uh, this horse <laughs> right. is too, this this horse is too tough for you, and um, but but she's flashback this... to perils of Pauline there a little yeah, bit. Yeah. What did you read my fucking notes? <laughs> I did not. I did not. <laughs> Daniel hacked my notes. Um, but no. Uh, so she she wants to ride the horse. She's in a love triangle between like our Western hero who is wearing all white and he's he's good looking and clean, and our scruffy guy who's a little <laughs> overweight and nasty and yeah. will shoot Indians if they bother him, you know, kind of thing. Like who who literally there's like a character in this thing, Ernest Torrance, who we will talk about shortly, I promise. Uh, it was a little, like every time this guy does something shitty, he's like, why didn't we just kill that guy? Like we yeah. should, he should just be dead. Like literally he saves him from a bog from like quicksand effectively. And then goes, we should just throw him back in. Like, there's no reason to have saved this guy. But, we'll we'll, we'll get back to how like his story arc is kind of like, yeah, everything he said. True. And he's justified <laughs> at the end. It's great. But so Molly's in this love triangle with these two characters. I could not help but think about the, the wagon train segment in Buster Scruggs. It feels oh, yeah. like Ford oh, Brothers yeah. know this film. Oh, because- it's very obvious. I actually watched a little bit of Ballad of Buster Scruggs after finishing this film. Yeah. Um, just out of like sheer. I think particular shots are ripped off from this. Um, I mean, I this would is. Not be surprised gorgeous uh photography of of these wagons and uh you know again for my you know i think we both do look at your very similar like kind of cursory googling <laughs> watching these films and so i'm sure i'm I'm stealing some of your trivia here but uh 
you know, these were, so this film was made in 1923 or 1922. And these are like a, a supposedly original wagons that have been, you know, sort of like yeah. maintained by families who crossed the great plains in them in Utah. Yeah. So, you know, from, from these kind of original, so these are probably like 50, 60, 70 years old. And I'm going to say, uh, I don't, know quite how I feel about that being like like these are like the original wagons so much well, as like these they, are like families that have sort of maintained this kind of idea of the wagon and have maintained the it, usage yeah. of it you know sort of thing as a, because like it doesn't feel like you know I have traveled across the Great Plains in 1860 or whatever 1870 and founded this new place called Utah uh, you know, and I am now going to make a family. And the first thing I'm going to do is make sure to save this wagon that I traveled across the plains with as the, you know, it feels a little bit like, uh, you know, I'm sure this has been reconstructed a few times. Like, like, you know, yeah, no, uh, I, I think the, the trivia I sort of read here is that a lot of these were, yeah, they had like maybe the skeletons of some of these original wagons and they repaired them and rebuilt them. Right. Um, although, it doesn't feel too weird that like, even if it was like just the thought that the family would have a wagon and call it one of the original wagons, right. because I'm just, I'm just saying there's a little bit of propaganda there and that kind of, no, no, like, I, it, I, I, you know, I, yeah. like I buy this sort of like basic thing because apparently like a lot of the extras in the film are people who like knew how to use these wagons who were like very conversant yeah. and like that kind of like being out West and like, you know, and so, yeah, sure, that's fine. But it does feel like a little bit like if you made a film today and we're like, oh, yeah, my dad, like, he hung on to his old, like, 1940s speedster, and this has been completely um, non, uh, <laughs> you know, we haven't done anything to this since 1942, but, uh, you know, we're all going to hang out. And do no, no, these are people, like, are enthusiasts who have maintained this or restored it or whatever. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. I'm not arguing with that. But I think there's a little bit of, like, propaganda that they used in the marketing oh, no, I, film. I, I, I totally agree because there's, there's a lot of pride, a lot of family pride and history invested in stuff like this, right? Because right. you, you look at the shots of these these wagon trains and, like, they look so authentic. Those just those big shots of that. Like you, you look at and and you go, if you had a camera in this period filming this, that's kind of probably what it would have looked like for the most yeah. part because it looks very authentic. Essentially, what this is for these people, these settlers going across the country, for a lot of people, this was a big trip for them, and this was for a lot of them at the end of their lives. They die yeah. along the trail, right? Absolutely. And, and, and this is a moving town. This wagon train is so big that it is a moving town. And you really get a feeling of this because when they're camping out, there's different segments of the wagon train. And, you know, they stick with their segment of the wagon train or whatever, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> there's an upstairs, downstairs element to, yeah. you know, like, you know, what class are you in this wagon train? Mm -hmm. And you get this even in a film in 1923. No, no, yeah. I agree. So yeah. the, there's a but, lot of great authenticity to this that makes it feel good. Yeah. And which, which in and of itself, even if the film itself didn't like rise above that mm -hmm. is worth viewing just for, that level of kind of authenticity and that kind of thing of like, even though that was kind of 70 years before and there's probably some bullshit in terms yeah. of, 
um, the way they're selling it. Like there is an authenticity to this and there is like this. This is kind of people who kind of knew how to kind of live in these wagons. Um, I was hardly amused uh, because there are some sequences that take place inside these wagons. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of these wagons are clearly uh, like a TARDIS. That's that's just, you know, because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a particular sequence where you know um, where uh, Lois Wilson is like uh, you know or Molly Wingate uh, our heroine is like mm-hmm. oh no I need to bring I need to bring Jim Bridger inside and I need to give him some booze so he'll remember things don't worry <laughs> we're gonna start talking about Jim Bridger in a minute right and then they walk up into the Conestoga wagon which <laughs> these things are a little like it's like two feet by eight feet sort of yep. like this is not these are and yet like they're just standing there it it looks like a soundstage so it's, you know, it's bigger on the inside is a clear a thing car. yeah it's a fucking yeah. train car exactly exactly yep. like no this is very clearly a soundstage so or before a soundstage like just a stage i don't know what they yeah. called it back before the, before sound was a thing but um they yeah called it a silent stage <laughs> they called it they just called it a stage <laughs> they, yeah whatever so yeah no i feel i feel like we've kind of hit a lot of the high points so we should uh ernest torrance is william jackson okay uh, uh this is cowboy judd hirsch <laughs> yeah he looks yeah. just like judd hirsch uh, by the way i have two other people who are uh i i, I put nicknames on for uh okay Okay. Charles Ogle is Jesse Wingate. He's cowboy uh, Rene Aberjouan Odo from Deep Space Nine. Rest sure, sure, uh, sure. And uh, Tully Marshall is Jim Bridger. He's cowboy Keith Richards. <laughs> we are going to talk a lot about this guy. I, I, I kind of want to. I kind of want to just get through uh, William Jackson. Um, clearly, the the best actor. Oh, this this, this fucking guy is amazing. He's so, so good. Fun. And they 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 like give him intertitles, which are literally like we gotta get our way to California, yeah, yeah, yeehaw! And it's like no, clearly his performance is way way better than than the than the pigeon they have oh, him yeah. speaking. Um, no, he he's really good. He's also like six foot four, like he yeah. towers above like everybody, and is the real hero of the film ultimately yeah. you know in so many ways. Like it's literally there's this like twenty five year old dipshit. <laughs> who gets to be like the the hero of the thing because he refuses to gouge a guy's eyes out when despite the fact oh, that he's been allowed to do so. So great. He's like every time he's like, You should have gouged his eyes out. Oh, you should have shot him at this point. Like you should have killed him here because it's well, just gonna come back and bite you in the ass. And literally, literally at the end of the film, he's like making bacon in a fireplace on a on a cast iron skillet, and I'm like, You dude, you're my man. I like you a lot. I want to eat some of that bacon. I want to sit and drink whiskey with you and eat bacon that you made off that cast iron yep. skillet. That's where my headspace is. <laughs> but he's literally sitting there, and like the bad guy shows up at this cabin, and our hero will ban. I keep wanting to call him Will Banion, but that's because like I'm a chemist. And like you know, cation and anion is a thing, and so I just kind of, I couldn't call him Banyan. I just wanted to call him Banion, you know. Yeah. So he's some weird ionic state. I don't know. Like we could talk about his oxidation level on another I mean, podcast. I suppose. Boring is chemistry. Like so, <laughs> chemistry is way more interesting than this guy. You know? I guess yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, this guy literally just opens the door and is like, "Oh, what are we doing here? Oh, look, there's a guy pointing a pointing a rifle at me. I guess I just need to stand here." And uh, you know, our hero, the real hero, Ernest Torrance, is William Jackson. He just shoots him through the window, and the guy's dead. And then he's like, oh, I guess I got some bacon grease on my trigger finger there. I don't know what happened. And he's like, well, I guess you killed him, so now movie's over. Like, it's just, like, it's so, it's so ridiculous. Like, our hero, I get the idea of, like, you know, not making him, like, bloodthirsty towards this towards yeah. this guy, you know. And I get, you know, kind of making him, like, this angelic figure. But it's literally, it goes beyond any sense of kind of giving him, like, this kind of moral forthrightness. To the point of like it making him like legitimately just stupid. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like no, you. This is in the eighteen hundreds. This guy has tried to kill you on numerous occasions. You have every right to kill this guy, and no one's going to blame you. Like you just right. kill this guy. Like you need to end them. And it's not even like he has this big moral high ground on this like sort of thing. It's not like it's not even like I could kill this person, but I'm going to choose not to because i have a moral duty to do so because it's legitimately just well no we just don't do that here like i don't know like it, it feels really it feels really forced is what i'm saying his like lack of willingness to kill him oh, fuck uh it's yeah it, it it's silly and i mean you know the love triangle is you know uh the, the the wagon master or whatever he's there there's this little subplot of uh how our uh quote unquote hero is oh he's he's got a reputation for stealing cattle back in the day when he was in the army or whatever so right well i don't want i don't want my daughter fucking this guy little missy like here, here's the thing <laughs> well, and he literally goes he literally goes leave my daughter alone yeah. And then, like, the guy's like, all right, I guess I'm leaving your daughter alone. And then after he's already danced with her, and, like, dancing with her in a movie in 1923 is effectively, like, he stuck his tongue in her holiest of holies, right? Exactly, that sort of yeah. Thing. And, uh, <laughs> and then he just kind of walks over, and he, like, shakes her hand and then walks away. And uh, it's like, like, wow, patriarchy for the win here. You know, like, this and, is... And, I mean, you know, Molly has, like, no interest in the other guy, Sam. Like, no. She's just sort of stuck in this position where it's, well, I guess I got to marry the asshole. I well, mean, what like, else am I going to do but marry the asshole? Like, clearly I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. It, it, like, early on when uh, when they ha- when Will and Sam have the fight and Will just kicks his fucking ass and, and is stopped from gouging his eyes out, she comes up to... Uh... Well, and he chooses not to gouge his eyes out, just to be yeah. clear. Like, he, yeah. he does... He Like, the, the crowd is, like, encouraging him to do it, and he's kind of like, ah, man, this, this just seems too hard. It seems a little hard to gouge his eyes out. Like, that feels, like, not... Like, I don't have a moral problem with this, but I get my hands dirty. <laughs> like, that's... I mean, like, after the fight, you know, Molly comes up to William Jackson and asks him, so what happened? Like... I can't believe he was going to gouge his eyes out and stuff. And it's like, oh, no, he decided not to. And then, like, he could have, but he decided not to. And she gets right horny about it. She's, oh, really? So who won the fight? Oh, well, fucking Will. Oh, he kicks his ass. He He kicks his ass. ass. She's like, oh, okay. There we go. Yep. No, no. Yeah, clearly, clearly, like, this guy, uh, a real hero. Uh, Apparently, like, he doesn't wear a gun in the movie, and apparently that's, uh, like, a period-accurate detail. Like, in the 1840s, like, um, 
people carrying guns is sort of more a Civil War, post-Civil War thing. So, right. like, it's kind of a weird thing. We should move on to Jim Bridger, I think. I think yeah. we've, we've given the audience enough of a sense of the uh, <laughs> of the main characters here. So there's basically, like, this, like, 30-minute interlude, 40-minute interlude, of where we end up hanging out with this... I'm just, he, like, a hippie. Like, he's just this... 1923 hippie wandering around in, in the mountains uh, who doesn't get attacked by the Native Americans because he doesn't own anything. <laughs> and so he's just kind of this guy who gets to kind of move along by himself. And then he ends up kind of hanging out with his wagon train and ends up being like a like a major character for a big chunk of this movie. Kind of comic relief. Yeah. And is clearly like the best character in the film in a lot of ways. You know? It was takes over for William Jackson. Like he, he he's yeah. like, Oh, we, we, we have William Jackson who is basically default our sort of comedic foil. But at the same time, he's also kind of like gouge his eyes out, kill him. You know, like just right. fucking kill him. Like he's the, you know, he's the dark side of that. William Bridger's is just like straight up. I just want to get drunk. Like, yeah. I just want to get drunk. I want to hang out. I want to, yeah. I want to, I want to do my thing. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to help you like kill some, kill some Buffalo. We're going to have some buffalo meat because, like, starvation is a problem that people run into in this movie. Um, Briefly, you know, for, like, two minutes, people are worried about where they're going to get meat. And then it's like, oh, how about the buffalo that are, like, right over there? And then, you know, no, 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 you got to kill them with an arrow. That's the more more effective way, you know. Right, right. Or run them off a cliff or some shit. And there is this, uh, you you do get the sense of, like, this is a guy who's, like, communed with the Native Americans and kind of knows knows the native ways or whatever and like has that there's always a white man in these kinds of things who who has like spent time with the native americans and gets that kind of like deep spiritual knowledge and the knowledge of the land and is like mm-hmm. the teacher and clearly the best of the native americans because he's white and all that sort of thing and all that yeah. stuff is just coded into this you know yeah but also like he's a really fun character he's mm-hmm. a really fun actor He's like walking around. He gets to kind of be the comic relief. He gets a moment to where he like he gets drunk and he gets told some information. And then later on, he's sober up. And then he's like, "I gotta get. I don't remember the thing. I've got to get drunk drunk. enough to remember the thing that I was told, so I can tell you." And it ends up being like the key detail that uh, that Molly needs. I need to to get fucking liquored out of my mind so I can push this fucking story to its conclusion so molly <laughs> pull out that moonshine in your chest or whatever that's been sitting there for the whole movie yeah. so i can get fucking just wasted out of my mind and and just just remember the fact oh wait uh oh, it turns out Mc- it turns out the hot boy uh did not actually russell castle uh, yeah he, russell he had cattle to, he had to he, take some cattle to feed his troops and diary right. Ever. Or it was like no the the cattle were sick or something like the details were literally like oh no he didn't steal those cattle there was like a completely justified reason but uh, it's so generic i don't remember it's also like hey, connection to the film we're gonna get into abraham lincoln was the lawyer who over you know was like investigating this or whatever so there you go this is this is kind of the beginning of that like this is that era of the lost cause mythology and so like we're, we're starting to rewrite the history of the civil war uh just a little bit around this time and uh you know the, the kind of the figure of abraham lincoln i don't know there's a really complicated history about abraham lincoln and his uh historiography but but no jim bridger like we spend a ton of time with him and like this is not the historical Jim Bridger 
at all. Like, the real Jim Bridger is fucking, like, however you feel, like, badass mountain man who, like, you know, survived on his own for 20 years, who spoke a couple of European, like, three or four European languages and a bunch of native languages. But spoke a lot of languages. Yeah, like what was and, and apparently like negotiated a lot of safe passage between yeah. um, Native Americans and uh, the, the kind of white settlers. And so, however you feel about like settler colonialism, and let's just be clear, I'm against it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is this is like if there were more men like Jim Bridger, maybe uh, we could have come to more compromises with these things. You know, like certainly yeah. better than the U.S. Army coming around and like massacring everyone. You know, so. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, but also, uh, I was sitting, I was kind of like watching this going, like, this is a really entertaining character. It's not a Jim Bridger. And then I was like looking at sort of Jim Bridger Wikipedia page going, what we need is like a movie about the real Jim Bridger. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the thing, you know. But yeah, no, he's super entertaining. I really love the uh, the performance, totally Marshall as his character. And, um, you know, I call him a hippie because he kind of is, right? Like, this is, this is. 40 years before the hippies are going to be a thing, 45 years. And yet like it reads very much like the, um, the character that Rick Dalton is going to like play in that episode of the Western and once upon a time in Hollywood, Yeah, yeah. like he's literally kind of walking around in that. And there's, there's an interesting dynamic there of like, you know, this kind of close to the earth, this kind of like, I guarantee you that guy is smoking weed. There's no way that guy is not smoking weed. Yeah, he he's he's shacked up with the the Native Americans who you know he, got the marijuana going on, you know. Like, he he he's got two, and I and I apologize. He's got two squaw wives, effectively. <laughs> like that's and I and I do apologize for the language, but that's also like clearly the language that the film is going to use, even though it doesn't yeah. quite use it in that way. Like he's that that that's the level at which you know the film kind of treats that. He literally has like little pet names for them. I don't mm-hmm. even remember the pet names, yeah. but they were like deeply both misogynistic and racist like that was you know how <laughs> terrible it is and yet this guy's a super super likable guy he literally brings on his wives and like look at my wives i've got two great wives except they're kind of <laughs> there's there's a little bit of like they're kind of in their 40s they're kind of yeah. you know like they're not you know portrayed as particularly attractive i'm sure they're perfectly reasonable human beings but you know well, like... it, it, it kind of it kind of feels like uh they were maybe like kicked out of their tribes maybe kind of thing right. like, yeah, yeah. yeah i mean I've, I've seen this sort of trope before and like sort of mountain like i've seen a lot of mountain yep. man kind of films right and usually you got the mountain man shacks up with a native american woman who is not affiliated with a tribe anymore like she's kicked out or something like that you know right. and she kind of stays with the white man or whatever you know kind of thing this guy's great though like he's <laughs> like amazing. i, I I honestly, I want a movie with this version of Jim Bridger as well. Like, I want the real Jim Bridger movie, but I want this movie as well. Like, if you could, like, tastefully do a comedy about this character, you know. A comedy film about the polyamorous Jim Bridger with, like, multiple, like, Native American wives who's, like, wandering around in Wyoming and just, like, helping the, just helping people through. Cohen Brothers, give us a call. We this, could help you with this. Like, I'm not even going to say we're going to write this one because the Coen brothers could write this. But like, you could totally imagine a Coen brothers film that's literally like the Jim Bridger from this. 
Oh my god, yeah. it's actually fucking perfect for them. Like, this yeah. is something they should fucking do. Like, yeah. they're so fucking got such a fucking hard on for westerns lately. They should mm-hmm. just fucking do it. <laughs> Cast Brad Pitt. Cast Brad Pitt. <laughs> so, such a fucking awesome just uh, movie connection. Like, it's just like you know, connected back to the Tarantino thing where you know I'm a I'm. D- Descended to Jim Bridger, you know, and shit like that. And yeah, yeah. It's like wow, yeah. The, I, I like that. I like that casting. I like that. That's great. That's because <laughs> you know it, it. It would be age appropriate too, because you know Brad Pitt's in his fifties. Jim Bridger. Jim Bridger. I've got him in his fifties. I think at this point in the movie, in eighteen forty-seven, he would have been forty-three. So. There we go. That that works because you know Brad Pitt looks like fucking ten years young, younger than he <laughs> right. is anyway. So yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that works. Uh, Coen Brothers, get us on it. Like we're 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 just we're we're presenting these <laughs> this, this initial story presentation yeah. producer credits. Give us a the lot story, of story is story by Daniel mm-hmm. Harper and Lee Russell. That's that's what we you know that's so that's, it's, that's all we want. We're we're, we're all we not. Want. And and um. A tiny amount of money by Hollywood standards. Yeah, which just, you and I could live off of for like several years. That would oh yeah. be yeah. I'd make some investments. Let's, let's put it that. Way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of done with this one. Like it's 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 pretty good. It's pretty. Good. It's, it's it's really really good. Get, get past the imperialism. This is a highly enjoyable film. Um, and there's just, snow in this. I, I was kind of like there. There's snow, snow which, hope. yeah, yeah. I like it's. It's like twenty minutes showing them go across the fucking river, <laughs> like the 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 ferrying of wagons across the river must have been mind-numbingly fucking slow for these yeah. people. Like, oh it, yeah, it, it just like the, the real history. Like you'd literally spend like two weeks just like crossing a river because yeah. like you'd ha- you'd bring over like five wagons a day or something. Across like a really rough river, and then like the the you know the rapids would be too high one day or something, and then you got to wait. And so like I mean, it little like people lived out of these wagons. Like that's the thing that like I think we forget in terms of kind of current cultural memory about these things. Mm-hmm. This was your house and home for yeah. you know months, uh, you know possibly like a year. Like people get stuck. People get stuck in the middle of like North Dakota over a winter and just basically have to like batten down the hatches and like live in this thing through the winter until you could like move again. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, Donner party. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. Um, I, well, I'll... that's another thing about the, the real Jim Bridger is like, you know, he was such a badass because he was just known for being a guy who could just survive out in the wilderness right. around this time. And do you know, like, he, he was just like the hardiest motherfucker anybody ever ran into. I mean, his, I mean, his career started out, he started as a fucking kid right in the pioneer days. That that's what he did. So, I mean, whatever, you know, whatever tall tales. And I mean, he, he was actually known for spreading a lot of fucking tall tales later in his life. Whatever tall tales you believe or don't believe about the guy, badass motherfucker. Either way, like he survived that long. Like most people didn't. So no. there you go. Uh, the only other note I have on this is I'm pretty sure they killed a horse at one point in this movie. Oh, that looks like a dead horse. Yes, no. that, that horse that came off the fucking cliff. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. hoping they. I'm hoping the horse was dead beforehand, but I have no illusions that 
that might have been a thing. <laughs> I think they just kind of pushed a horse off a cliff. It's entirely possible. There's no SPCA in this. In yeah. this era, you know? <laughs> uh, so a little bit of trivia for this. Well, before we get into that, I'll just, I'll just throw the uh, the budget estimated was uh, 782000 uh, and I don't think these are adjusted for uh, inflation or anything today. Yeah, no, it's a huge, it's a huge budget for a film of this time. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it made po- three point five million. So a little bit of trivia. Here this is also. a blockbuster. This is a huge. This it, is both a huge budget, and this is a Marvel movie of its time. Like it really you know. is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although there are scenes that show huge uh, buffalo herds that look like thousands of animals, uh, large buffalo herds didn't exist at this point because they were kind of almost exterminated. <laughs> they used small lid castings of various sizes of buffalo and placed larger ones towards the camera, and used diminishing sizes in the background for depth. So they basically just inflated the buffalo herd with like still lead little uh, buffalo models or whatever, and uh, they they pulled a Peter Jackson on this. That's what they did. They really yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you don't really see any like there, there's a lot of buffalo and like the initial herds they don't move at all, and and those are those are all the lead ones. Apparently, two horses drowned when they were doing the scenes with the uh, trying to move the wagons across the river. Yep. Um, Oh God, this is bad. I'm glad this didn't, this doesn't happen. Uh, in an early cut of this film, prior to its release, director James Cruz appeared in a brief cameo, heavily disguised as an Indian. Uh, <laughs> screenwriter Jack Cunningham wrote him a memo saying that even if viewers didn't recognize him from his days as an actor, he looked too white alongside the genuine Indians who appeared in the film. Cunningham prevailed and the scenes were deleted. And yeah, there's all the Indians in this are real Indians apparently. So, yeah. you know, kudos for them for doing that. Cause you, you don't see that a lot in the coming years. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, even even in the other film, like uh, that we're yeah. going to discuss, they literally have like Chinese actors playing Native Americans. So you know, yeah, yeah, and then white people playing Chinese, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, okay. So so we gotta so we gotta hire Chinese people to build the railroad mm-hmm. in this movie, right? Oh no, no, we actually need like more Native Americans over on this other set. So we take the Chinese actors and move them over play native americans then who's going to play the chinese people oh just put some put some yellow paint on like the white people we've already got so, yeah, yeah. You know, like, whatever whatever you do as long as as long as the racism you just spread the racism around and everybody's going to be fine with it that's the way you that's the way you do this i mean all you got to do is you know put an elastic band and on their head and make their <laughs> eyebrows come up <laughs> Like that's, it's fine. Elastic pans are dime a dime a dozen, man. It's like it's not a big deal. <laughs> Have we not learned anything from D.W. Griffith? <laughs> At least way. this is not as racist as D.W. Griffith. That's the thing. Like both of these films have like deep structural problems with racism. Mm-hmm. Neither one is as bad as like. The not racist D.W. Griffith, like <laughs> the less racist D.W. Griffith film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play a little bit of music and we're going to come back with The Iron Horse.
All right, the Iron Horse from 1924, and uh, although he was not initially credited, directed by John Ford, you might know him from Stagecoach, which we've already covered, uh, The Searchers, <laughs> which we will probably never, never cover. Never cover, never L- cover. Last yeah. episode. <laughs> episode 1000. Homies. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, written by Charles Kenyon. My and... darling Clementine, which I discussed yeah. in one of the Monus episodes. Like, yeah. John Ford, you know, some loser. He's done some <laughs> films. Uh, he did a couple of movies that people sort of liked. Yeah. Uh, written by Charles Kenyon and John Russell. Starring George O'Brien as Davy Brandon. Marge Bellamy as Miriam Marsh. Uh, she's interesting. She was probably better known for White Zombie in 1943. Arrested in San Francisco and charged with assault with a deadly weapon after firing a 32 caliber revolver at her former lover, wealthy lumber executive Albert Stanwood Murphy, three times. Apparently winged him, too. That kind of ruined her career. So, yeah. A little bit of scandal. Bunch of bullshit, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean... Apparently he started fucking some other chick and she was bad about it. So she went down and tried to scare him. That was her testimony anyway. I just wanted to scare him. I didn't want to kill him. I just wanted to wing him and scare him. So Fair, yeah, fair. Yeah. Charles Edward Bull is Abraham Lincoln or is, uh, I want to call him, um, really creepy pseudo Peter Cushing because that's what he looks like. <laughs> in this. Uh, Cyril Chadwick is Peter Jensen. Uh, Will well, uh, Walling as Thomas Marsh, Francis Powers as Sergeant Slattery, Jay Farrell McDonald as Corporal Casey, Jim Welch as Private Schultz, George Wagner as Colonel William F. Buffalo Bill Cody. You might know who that guy is. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Fred Culler as uh, Darrow or Bauman. I, I think some of these are like um, have different names and different versions of this. Yeah, no, that but makes I, sense. So, James A. Marcus as Judge Holler, Gladys Houlet as Ruby, and Chief John Bigtree as uh, Cheyenne Chief, although he's uncredited. My God, we got a big synopsis here from David Steele from IMDb. Springfield, Illinois. Brandon, a surveyor, dreams of building a railroad to the west, but Marsh, a contractor, is skeptical. Uh, Abraham Lincoln looks on as... Their children, Davy, Brandon, and Miriam Marsh, play together. Brandon sets off with Davy to survey the route. Uh, they discover a new pass, which will share, shave 200 miles off the expected distance, but they are set upon by a party of Cheyenne. One of them, a white renegade with only two fingers on his right hand, kills Brandon and scalps him. Davy buries his father. Years pass. It is 1862, and Lincoln signs the bill authorizing construction of the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railways. Marsh's principal contractor and Miriam is engaged to Jessen, the chief engineer. Crews of Chinese, Italians, and Irish work to build the railway while resisting an Indian attack. When uh, the pay train is delayed by Indian ambush, the Italians go on strike Miriam persuades them to return to work. Marsh needs to find a shortcut through the Black Hills. To finish on time, he needs to shorten the route by 200 miles. <laughs> Go figure. Bowman, the biggest landowner, wants to wants the route to stay the same, though his land, Marsh, is entrusted Justin with finding uh, the new route. 
Uh, Bauman has has Ruby, a saloon girl, persuade Jessen to do otherwise. Davy, now a Pony Express rider, recalls his father's discovery. He sets off to find the pass. He goes alone, except for Jessen. Yeah, okay, it's a little. Uh... The, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of plot here. Yeah, and that's not even all of it. Like that's like half of it. <laughs> like, yeah, and, it's, and at the same time, it feels like a lot of the plot doesn't matter <laughs> in this film. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll just uh, throw you, Daniel. What's your sort of initial thoughts on this? <laughs> there's, there's a lot in this film. Uh, yada yada racism, which we talked about in the last film. Yep. You know, uh, a lot of that kind of carries over. It's a um, lot worse here. It's a lot worse here, yeah, no. Um, you know, which is saying something. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's also sort of, uh, you know, like... It suffers from kind of that like liberal, uh, <laughs> we're all gonna get along kind of racism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where you know, yeah, like, sure, no, like, Chinese people actually have dialogue in the film, right? But they like, they're portrayed as all kind of working together with the Italians and the Irish as if the Italians, Irish, and Chinese people have like sort of unique like all have the same personal history because they all worked on this railroad yeah we're all going to be pro-american and abraham lincoln is literally like a father figure of this Mm -hmm. railroad and he's literally like the the like this great statesman like john ford jerking off over abraham lincoln (laughs) it's literally like lincoln seaman all over this film like that's kind (laughs) of what we're looking at here um but like you get to see like oh yeah and the Italians and the Irish they're like ribbing each other and then like you know yeah. it's a it's a thing and then like no Chinese people ever get to have that but like they're in there at the same time we're all Americans right it's all the same thing you know, um so all that aside um because like you know there is there's some kind of funny bits uh, uh-huh. among that um this is inc- this is pretty well made i mean the the summary like that plot synopsis is kind of it doesn't really do the film justice. And I no. think there's a lot of, like, I don't know, some of that stuff I just don't quite remember in the yeah, film, no, you know? The, uh, I had that problem with this film. I was like, yeah. a lot of it just kind of washed over me. It's like, uh. right, right. And I feel like, you know, it's also like kind of like I, I watched both of these kind of back to back, just sort of like, and, and um, you know, the covered wagon is so like smooth and easy to follow. And this feels a little bit more like a, um, I don't want to say documentary because it's not, but it is, it does feel like kind of like it like kind of an, like an educational film, like yeah. the kind of thing that you might like, even though it's kind of a silent film and it's in it's you know this like kind of big epic or whatever, like structurally it feels like. And then you know Abraham Lincoln said we're going to build a railroad. Well, yeah, the and then, the, the title cards are presented that way. Right, right. It, it feels very much like something you would have. Like kind of been forced to watch in like fourth grade about the history right. of the Transcontinental Railroad. Two and a half sometime. hours. Uh, uh, just a sec. What, what version did did you watch? Two and a half. I did hour? watch. The, I did watch the two and a half hour version okay. of this. Yes. Um, so the one know. I watched uh, on YouTube. There's a bunch of different versions on YouTube. Yep. I watched the one that was two hours because it was like okay. a restored version that was uh, some guy edited, just some random guy, like not even a company or whatever, just edited to fit like an original William Perry score or something like that. Okay. And so he, he changed the frame rate and everything. So, and he cut just a minute amount of scenes out, but it basically shortened it down to two hours. 
So. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, no, no, I, I went for the, I found like the two hour, 38 minute version or whatever this is and, and watched it, um, you know, and in a couple of segments, I mean, this was, this was like the covered wagon. I pretty much just kind of went through yeah. um, pretty easily. Um, this was, this was kind of, you know, three or four segments over the course of a day sort of thing. It's very John Ford. Like it, it, you know, all of the weaknesses, all the strengths and the weaknesses, it's got a lot of kind of complexity in terms of like the tone because it does, um, I think kind of accurately kind of bring in, uh, some of the comedic elements, uh, that are really quite well done. Like for yeah. a moment, I thought we were going to get the three stooges. <laughs> I literally went like, hold on, were the three stooges introduced in the iron horse in 1924? Because like, Oh, we got these three guys and they're going to do a comedy bit. And it's like, Holy shit. Is that what we're watching? Um, the three stooges were a thing at this point, although they didn't make their film debut until 1930. But right. like, it does feel like entirely possible that, uh, you know, somebody had like seen their, vaudeville show and went like oh we're gonna kind of do that same idea i have no evidence for that but it does yeah. it does you know kind of have a there 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 are kind of vaudeville elements to some of the humor and some of the dialogue is pretty pretty cute i mean there are some there are some jokes in this that are pretty good like you know and not just like making fun of like some redneck accent which we get in the covered oh, wagon uh, right you know some of the some of the subtitles in this are kind of racist, though. Like the Mexican guy character. <laughs> it's like, wow, you did that. You went there. <laughs> Some of the intertitles are kind of racist is an understatement. And yeah. Have, you know, um, it's not. They're practically saying we don't need no stinking badges with like yeah. five E's in the middle of some yeah, of that, you know. Um, but yeah, like that's actually. I mean, a lot of novels around this time were kind of written in that same kind of like. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's just how they did things. Um, yeah. You know, if you read, if you read novels around that time, even you know decades later, you'd find stuff from like the forties and fifties, where like a Mexican character walks on and is like. Senor, senor, I need, I, I need a burrito, senor. You know, like that sort of thing. Oh, so, no, like mean, every genre. I mean, uh, like not, not long after this, Lovecraft, a lot of his stuff, like where he's like doing rural accents and stuff, is like heavy on this shit. Like, <laughs> well, and that is clearly the most racist thing in H.P. Lovecraft. Not no, the not, name not, of his cat. Not the name uh, of his cat. Not the name of his cat, or talking about subhuman species, you know. Compared to if, the you, if you do Google the name of his cat, uh, don't do it on a work computer. We're <laughs> just gonna leave it there. Right? Yeah, although you know, you know, to be fair, and I'm not trying to be super fair here, that was a common name for pets back in the day too. Right. right, right, right. <laughs> um, I really liked uh, Ruby as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, uh, this is, I think the first silent film I've seen that passes the Bechtel test. Like there is, uh, there are lines of dialogue between, um, Miriam and Ruby, which mm-hmm. I like. I like the sort of, you know, once upon a time in the West kind of idea of like, we're building the railroad and this is kind of like civilization happening. And this sort of like this idea of, these are people that are all kind of learning to live together to a certain degree. Right. I liked the, uh, you know. Ruby is like portrayed as like you know she's a woman with like I forget the exact language but it's like a woman with like uh 
you know, unflattering tastes or, you know, so it's sort of like, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't quite uh, care who she's, who she's hitting on. And she hits on this guy who's playing cards and he like rebuffs her like four times. And then he throws whiskey in her face. Yeah, <laughs> she like, shoots him, but like yeah. wings him. And then they go to trial and um, the judge, who's also kind of like the mayor and kind of like the kind of the, the you know kind of the lead guy in town, is kind of like feels like something that was very common. Back oh yeah, then. yeah, very very common. It's like like look, we're you know I get to make all the decisions because um, you know I'm the one person who has like any kind of governmental authority here. Yeah, and he really has a line. That, well, you know, if you throw whiskey in the face of a woman who's known to be armed, um, you, that that's not attempted murder. That's an unsuccessful suicide. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, yeah. I'm with you. Like Ruby, Ruby, well known, well known in this town. Yeah, and, um, I, and I would I would chat up Ruby in a bar, no no problem. Like, yeah, no problem. Yeah. She she was the one. I'm kind of like, yeah, we need to follow that character around a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, instead of our like white bread McGee kind of guy, um, <laughs> you know, this is a this is a film that's about sort of the 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 building of this railroad, and so you do get a lot of that kind of history of this, and you know, kind of the the you know Westward Ho kind of kind of stuff. Where it really fucking drags too. It drags on that, and it drags I, on the and it drags on like anything involving the leads, basically. Yeah, you know, like. I mean, even more white bread than in the covered wagon, where like you know you kind of got this dramatic hero who's supposed to be our kind of you know the person we're following around but it's way less interesting than the people around him like in this like the people that are really interesting are like ruby and to a lesser extent madge and like the magistrate and um you know all the kind of other characters who are kind of like building the society and kind of the jokey thing that they're doing like there's a 90 minute version of this film which just cuts out all the extraneous characters and just gives us like kind of the comedy and the kind of building of the railroad and that's a pretty good movie, right? You know. Yeah. Here, here's the big problem. Okay, so we start off, and we have you know we establish all the characters early on. So this is like thirty, twenty, thirty years earlier to the main thrust of the plot. Right, right. And so you know we have the two kids who are you know they're sweet on each other. You know they're mm-hmm. they're both younger preteens or whatever. But you know it's it's kind of like a semi Romeo and Juliet thing because. You have the two competing fathers, you know, the the one who wants to build the railroad. And the other guy's like, yeah, we can't do it. <laughs> so Pat pats him on the shoulder. Yeah, your silly idea of building a railroad ain't going to happen, buddy. You want to build a railroad? Yeah. What is this, 1859? Fuck you, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, I mean, it stops there. You know, the kid sees his father get killed by, you know, the the white renegade who joins the, the, the natives and shit uh, with two fingers, the two fingered man. Yeah. Which, you know, of course he's, of course he's going to, he's going to join those perverted native savages because he's only got two fingers. He can't function as a white man anymore. <laughs> so we, we gotta, we gotta throw him in there, but, uh, <laughs> but it stops there and you don't see that motherfucker again until like the 56 minute mark in this film. Right, like right. it goes so far until you see him again. Wow, I don't. You need to cut a lot of shit out of this film because it's. I mean, I thought the ro- the idea of like the romance between these two characters, that'd be a good narrative. Like that that would be great. Like they're they're sweet on each other's kids. They meet each other again later on. That's great, but it could be done in ninety minutes. It it, it didn't need to be yeah, two and a half it feels, hours. It feels it feels very long, and I mean, you know, even I don't know. It's. Like, 
I feel like complicated about like saying this is paced weird because it's hard to understand like kind of what audiences at the time would have it's also it's also hard to know what the intentions of like john ford and stuff was is is he making like is his intention to make an epic docudrama of the building of the railroad because if he's doing that he accomplishes that. He, he does it. I, I think that's the goal. I think that's yeah. kind of what he's trying to do. And almost the narrative conceit, like the, the kind of the, the love, like the romance and the, like kind of those elements are the sort of like narrative through line that he needs in order to do like the real thing he's interested in, which is just kind of make the docudrama, which, yeah. you know, ultimately as much as sort of the, the kind of Westward Ho expansion, uh, you know, building the railroad, like kind of kind of school diorama version of this film, as as kind of airless as some of that feels. At least that feels like kind of like if that's your goal in making this movie, you succeeded, right? Like you did the thing that you were trying to do, and like kind of doing that sort of. I kept thinking of It's a Wonderful Life, like Frank Capra, especially in that like opening <laughs> sequence where, you know, it is this kind of like hoary Americanism, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, thing. And this kind of like, you know, like white bread, you know, kind of eat your Wheaties kind of, kind of, uh, you know, like this is good for you stuff. And if that's what you want to do, like that's, I, you know, like while we can have differences about like kind of political opinions about like kind of the, the value of that or whatever, but like it, that's that's the thing that this movie is, Ford and I sort of accept that as a, as a thing that it does, and yeah. throwing in the humor and kind of having like the the characters kind of running around and kind of goofing off and that sort of thing, like I, it's it, it sells this kind of version of like oh these are human beings that kind of did this, the narrative with the like the couple and like the families and all that sort of thing like that's the thing that just sort of like shuts the whole film down for me because it's just kind of you know and now we have to like cut back to like mr white bread nonsense sort of thing although i kind of agree with your version as well it's like well if you just did that plot and you didn't have all the other stuff that's also kind of like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see that. It's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of a goofy, like, 90-minute, you know, like, love story my, kind of movie. That's my thought on this. There's there's two 90-minute films in this that could have yeah. been done really effectively, and they're kind of compressed into one big film that just doesn't work for me right. personally. Like, I'm just I, – I liked a lot in this. Like, don't get me wrong. I would still, like, sort of barely recommend people watch this just for its historical value. Mm-hmm. But – I don't think it's a good film necessarily mm-hmm. overall, and and I, to be honest, a lot of this just passed over me because it's like I don't give a fuck about the competing railroads. Like I don't right. give a shit about that. And that's well, like and the, it's like completely non reconstructed. They were competing; these two companies were competing to reach the mm-hmm. middle point. Company A. Did four miles the first day, and then Company B beat that with yeah. six miles, and then Company C did eight miles the next day. And look at look at how great they are! Like, and it's like, yeah, you're just exploiting your workers. You're just exploiting. Like, this is just. But there is value in just kind of watching the the actual labor of how mm-hmm. the this was put together. And so you are kind of like watching people literally like driving like stakes into the ground and like building a railroad. And there's a lot of that, that kind of stuff that I think is, even though that isn't authentic to the period. Obviously, they're not like shooting in in 1869. Yeah, um, you know, there is there is something 
to that that it is evocative there, footage. There, there's there's like a um, there's like a really good hour long documentary, not documentary, right. but docudrama here. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then there's also potentially another good hour and twenty minute historical romance surrounding these in, these developments and. You could cut a lot out of both films. You just yeah. you, you could make those films, and you know at the same time, I applaud John Ford for trying to yeah. make this work together. Because I mean, when you look at it, <laughs> well, it, let's be clear: this is the top grossing film of 1924. Yeah, like so. It's this. This was enormously successful at yeah. the time, and so audiences got a lot out of this, you know. So, um, you know, we are kind of looking back on it and kind of like viewing it through modern eyes and kind of those, going, those like, yeah, fucking this is, Neanderthals. This is a whole bunch of bullshit, which it is a whole bunch of bullshit. Um, <laughs> you know, but but it but it was uh, you know, I, it's not like it was inventing things. It's just like it was. You know, it was balancing these elements of doing the comedy and doing the kind of docudrama and doing all this and kind of putting it all in one movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it it's successful. It, I mean, it it served its need, and I think that you know this was again we said this in the kind of talking about uh, the covered wagon when um, there is this like history of uh, you know westerns were kind of on the down low or on the downslope at this point, and so after the covered wagon which was kind of the big epic Western and kind of the first big epic Western. And then this is like the second, this is like the follow-up to that. And this, yeah. you know, kind of creates the Western genre in a lot of ways. I mean, there is this sense where even an audience kind of sitting and watching this in 1924 would have not seen it quite in that way. They would have seen it as, Oh, it's got comedy bits and everything, but like, Oh my God, look at all the gorgeous photography. I mean, this is like yeah. a big special effects, like big epic film of that time you know so the the train attack scene is fucking great like oh yeah 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 and and uh you can see um um bits of things that are going to end up in stagecoach in 15 years right so so there's there's a lot of great stuff here i i mean i don't know i feel like i don't have we've kind of said it all with this one you know i think that's the thing is like we do approach these also as like oh we're gonna podcast these and there is the uh you know, okay, I've got to have like a take on this. I've got to have like a, a thing that I'm going to say. And, um, you know, the covered wagon gave us a lot to say. Like, we yeah. had a lot of, like, you know, whereas this is kind of like, eh, it's, it's fine, I guess. You know, um, it would be hard to kind of fill like an hour just on, just on the iron it, horse. It's, I mean, I'll, I'll say this for the iron horse. It's definitely important as far as like the dna of westerns to come like it yep. it, it, it definitely does solidify a lot of tropes that it, it both steals from covered wagon and mm-hmm. creates itself and it's worth watching for that yeah watch it if you really are interested in like the roots of the western otherwise it's like it's kind of a chore yeah it, it's a bit of a chore and you know the thing with a lot of these silent films you can put them on 1.5x and uh, get most of what you know you're supposed to get out of it honestly. yeah <laughs> like take into account i watched the two-hour version of this where shit is sped up and there's like a couple things cut out right and even then i was like eh, they could have chapped it down another half hour they, they, they really could have yeah no it's it's definitely too long it's definitely too yeah. long so yeah so uh a little bit of trivia for this uh the kitchen staff for the film was uh made up largely of chinese cooks and some of these were actually uh, involved in the 
the construction of the transcontinental railroad in 1916 or 1869. Um, oh, Jesus. So yeah. So 19, they, they actually, so like 50 years. So like you've got like 70 year old cooks on the, <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, which is, I don't, I don't know if that's great or if that's like deeply <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> I don't. I. It's like I it's, broke it's, my it's back so... building this fucking railroad, and, and then and, and now I'm making like pittance feeding like the people making, making the movie about this, and now we're making a movie about this. Yeah, I. And yeah, like I don't know uh, how to feel about that. It's just, and then it's so hard. It, go. Yeah, it's, it's it's just so hard to like think about it because we're like a hundred years removed from this shit at this point, yeah. where it's just like. Thankfully, we have solved all of these problems. Today. Yeah, racism doesn't yeah. exist anymore, guys. No, it's all done. Did you not it's know done. that? Yeah. <laughs> a notation on the title card states that in the final scenes of the meeting of the West and the East Railways, director John Ford used the actual engines that did meet on that day, the Jupiter and the Locomotive 116. This claim was, in fact, not true. Not only were neither of the engines uh, the original ones, but one of the actual engines had been dismantled for scrap many years before. Uh, and yeah, like no, this... they, they were both scrapped. Were they? Yeah, they, they... according to according to Wikipedia. Okay, uh, but yeah, this, this and, film and does... it's the one nineteen, not the one sixteen, which should be like. Oh, was it? Okay, <laughs> yeah. so the IMDb says one sixteen, but um... no, the one sixteen. It's labeled the one sixteen in the movie. Oh, and yeah. in the title card, but the real thing is the 119. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, like, yeah, this movie talks a lot about being historically accurate. Uh, like, I, th- I think early on it says all these facts are true. Pretty much 90% of them are not true. <laughs> it's just right. like, we just made this shit up. Abraham Lincoln, he existed, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. No, the Union Pacific 119 was scrapped in 1903, and the Jupiter was scrapped in 1909. So. There we go. Unless yeah. they shot that footage in 1903, um, these were not yeah, the yeah. original. Yeah, the, <laughs> this is this is great. Apparently, this production had its own bootlegger. <laughs> While doing a run one night, the bootlegger in question allegedly hit and killed someone with his car, which oh is just this is like wow, like it's it's a it's like it's a movie production. Couldn't you just like hire someone who's Making booze at <laughs> the point that's not a bootlegger, like I, I don't know. This was during prohibition, right? It was this prohibition at this point. Well, then that just makes it both cool and bad at the same time. Yeah, prohibition's in nineteen twenty to nineteen thirty three. Uh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so they had a they had a bootlegger like just doing the the white lightning run for them, and apparently they hit someone, and killed them with their car, which is. Yeah. How how lovely. How lovely. Yeah, how lovely. <laughs> uh, that's oh, the problem with the demon booze, you see. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the we yeah. couldn't we couldn't we can't do this stuff. Uh budget for this was 280,000 and box office was 2 million apparently. So Yeah. Again, <laughs> adjusted for inflation, that's like, you know, a huge a huge hit. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, so Daniel, what are what are we doing next week? It's Battleship Potemkin, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's Battleship Potemkin. 
Uh, and we will have a, uh, well, hypothetically, we'll have a uh, special guest who is a regular guest. And if you remember our Sherlock Holmes episodes, you can probably guess who it's going to be. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Potentially, if, if we can't do it next week, it's still going to be the next episode, whether it, you know, we're just going to wrangle Jack in and get him to do it. So that's, that's yeah. the way it's going to work. That's the way it's going to work. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, the next uh, three, we will be doing like single movies, which are uh, like considered like some of the great classics of the silent era. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'll just I'll just kind of say it now. Like the next three are going to be Battleship Potemkin, The General and Wings um, from 1927. So uh, not the um, not the sitcom, <laughs> not the sitcom no, Wings. Yeah. No, we're not going to we're not going to do that. I thought about it. I thought about like, yeah, yeah. Instead of doing the 1927, you know, like a silent film, the first winner of the Best Picture at the Oscars, mm-hmm. um, let's just do the entire sitcom Wings. You know, clearly we'll just change this podcast. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stu, <laughs> Stu Joe Hackett and his like fledgling uh, aircraft company in Nantucket. <laughs> <laughs> it, it'd be great. Like we we center our podcast around that. We could branch off to what what's what's that fucking wine movie that uh, the fucking wine movie the the guy from Wings he's in a wine movie with uh, are you thinking the 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 guy who plays like the handyman in Wings I can't oh think oh of yeah sideways, sideways 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 there yeah, we yeah. go yeah Tom Satan Church yeah, sideways Tom is pretty Church. good sideways yeah. is pretty good yeah. Oh, we can do that. Yeah, that that's our new podcast now, guys. We're we're not doing this shit anymore. TMB DOS is dead. The the fucking Two Wings podcast is now. Officially... We're gonna we're gonna be doing Wings. We're gonna do an episode of Wings and then re-review Sideways every mm-hmm. week. That's gonna and be the new podcast. We're also gonna talk about Thomas Hayden Church and Spider Man Three. Yeah. Also, Tony Shalhoub, who was in Wings. Who, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going for like a big night, which was the uh, like the cooking, like the the chef movie. I was like, you were like a wine movie. I'm like, oh, are you thinking about like Tony Shalhoub and Big Night? We are so far off of anything we, we really are about. You know, like, you know. <laughs> this is what we do when we got to wrap up, and it's like, yeah, yeah, we're done. We've been talking for an hour and forty five minutes. Yeah, we've been drinking. Yeah. We've been drinking. It's the thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dan, Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? I am on Twitter. I'm taking a few days off from Twitter, but I am on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. I literally uninstalled the fucking thing from my phone because I'm just like, I need to just be off of this for a while. But you you. can follow me there uh, if you want to. I'll be checking on my my, my desktop for a little while. Just peruse his old posts because they're brilliant. Yeah, they're all great. Every single one of them is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also find me. I do a podcast about Nazis, terrible people. I don't speak German. Uh, I don't speak German. Uh, check that yeah. out. I yeah, can't imagine. I can't imagine you listen to this and don't already know about that. But you know, if you're new to it, you know, just just get on that. And... <laughs> if this is your first Timbados episode, <laughs> wow! Welcome. Can you imagine this being somebody's first Timbados? You knowing nothing in... about either one of us. You just jumped right into the fire, like it's just... <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Just roast your nuts on this fire and just like start following our shit. Um, 
This is, you this can is find... like the vines where they put their balls in soy sauce <laughs> and then see if they can taste it, you know? That's, you put your balls in this episode. Yeah. want to see if you can taste, the, see, nuts. taste, taste the Timbados by putting taste, your balls in this episode. Taste the nuts and they must be destroyed on site. Not, not to say that we don't have listeners who do not have testicles and we don't appreciate them as well. Um, no, I mean. I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do have many. Listeners. My balls are usually clean. I don't dip them in anything, but. It's not neither here or there. It's yeah, just kind of yeah. a thing. Um, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Uh, you can find our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, YouTube links. Join the Facebook group. Best way to get in touch with us. I don't know why you'd want to after this last <laughs> minute or so we've been talking. You know, it, it's so if if you so desire to join after this shit, then well, that's on you, really. <laughs> that's entirely your choice. That has nothing. That's not on us anymore. You've decided. You you made the decision. You fucked up bad. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can you can find all our shit there. And um, yeah, we're gonna come back with Battleship Potemkin. P- Did I say that P- right? Potemkin. 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 I'm so drunk right now. I just can't say anything right. It's fine. That's why I'm keeping you on air, just to let people laugh. Let people yeah, laugh you're at us longer. You're you're, fuck you, you, yeah, you son of a bitch. Um, I I am the asshole of this podcast. You're, you're the one something. who's been drinking whiskey all day. I just only had beer, and you're still more sober than me. What the mm-hmm. fuck is even with that? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, we'll we'll see you guys next time. Uh thank you for listening. Thank you Daniel and uh goodbye. Cheers. Yana come a miserable I knew her, do you know? Well, I know the body Paper in her hand. Well, I'm going to ask the governor. He's trying to lose my man. Lift the midnight special. Shine a light on me. Let the midnight special. Shine a light on me. When you get up in the morning, when that deep still rain, you go to march to the table. Same damn thing, not a fork on the table. There's nothing in my pain. Never said a thing about it. Out of trouble with the main, let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine an ever loving light on me. Well, I went to the nation and the territory. Well, I love lived in Mexico. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a ever-loving light on me. You ever, ever go to Houston? Boy, you better walk right. And you better not squabble. And you better not fight. Fast and Rocker will rescue you. Hayden Boone will take you down. You 
listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.